Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the subpoenas issued by the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection to compel testimony by Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy and Congressman Jordan, Biggs, Brooks and Perry, and look into why Republican leaders like McCarthy, McConnell and Senator Graham are patriots in private, but traitors in public. Now that there is ample audio evidence that these top Republicans privately feel about how dangerous and deranged Trump is yet in public, they continue to support him and his lies that he won the last election, we will assess how much the law itself will be undermined if Trump and the insurrectionists are not held to account. Joining us is Karen Greenberg, Director of the Center on National Security at Fordham Law School and International Studies Fellow at New America, and a permanent member of the Council on Foreign Relations. A noted expert on national security, terrorism and civil liberties, she's the author of The Least Worst Place, Guantanamo's First 100 Days, and Rogue Justice, The Making of the Security State. And her latest book is Subtle Tools, The Dismantling of American Democracy from the War on Terror to Donald Trump. We'll discuss her article at Tom Dispatch, The Empire's New Clothes, The Veneer of Accountability is Wearing Thin, in 21st century America. Then we'll examine the emergence of a new axis of autocrats and the extent to which spoilers like Putin's friends Orban in Hungary and Erdogan in Turkey are undermining NATO, while our own pro-Putin spoiler in the United States Senate, Rand Paul, is the lone holdout in getting aid to Ukraine. Joining us is David Phillips, the director of the Peace Building and Rights Program at the Institute for the Study of Human Rights at Columbia University and a former senior advisor and foreign affairs expert to the United States Department of State during the administrations of Presidents Clinton, Bush and Obama. And also joining us is Madeleine Jolson, Executive Director of the Turkish Democracy Project. Together they are the co-authors of a new report from Columbia's Peacebuilding and Human Rights Program, An Uncertain Ally, Turkey's Response to Russia's War on Ukraine. Then finally, we will speak with Ian Morris, the Jean and Rebecca Willard Professor of Classics and Professor of History at Stanford University and the author of the forthcoming book, Geography is Destiny, Britain and the World, A 10,000-Year History. He's the author of the critically acclaimed Why the West Rules for Now and has published many scholarly books and directed excavations in Greece and Italy. We will discuss his article at time.com, Central Asia could be the key to driving a wedge between Russia and China. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. 
And joining us now is Karen Greenberg, who's the Director of the Centre on National Security at Fordham Law School and an International Studies Fellow at the New America Foundation and a permanent member of the Council on Foreign Relations, a noted expert on national security, terrorism and civil liberties. She's the author of The Least Worst Place, Guantanamo's First 100 Days and Rogue Justice, The Making of the Security State. And her latest book is Subtle Tools, The Dismantling of American Democracy from the War on Terror to Donald Trump. And she has an article at Tom Dispatch, The Empire's New Clothes, The Veneer of Accountability is Wearing Thin in 21st Century America. Welcome to Background Briefing, Karen Greenberg. Very nice to be back. Well, thanks for joining us, Karen. And uh, much is being made of the uh, subpoenas that uh, the House Select Committee investigating January the 6th have issued to House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, Congressman Jim Jordan, Scott Perry, Andy Andy Biggs, and Mo Brooks. But of course, whether or not this is going to make a difference, they'll drag it out. And we've already seen uh, Stephen Bannon defy subpoenas, and his trial doesn't even start till July. And it's interesting, interesting to note that his co-conspirators, Bannon's co-conspirators in bilking Trump followers, uh, the MAGA crowd, over this phony project to help uh, build the wall on the Mexican border, his co-conspirators in that are going to jail, (laughs) where obviously Bannon should be joining them, but unfortunately, uh, or fortunately for him, of course, Donald Trump pardoned him. But what I find extraordinary, Karen, is that the revelations of these tapes that have emerged from the two New York Times reporters of conversations with McCarthy and others in the House after the January 6th insurrection, as well as what we've learned from Mitch McConnell and also from Lindsey Graham. We have a situation where these these Republican leaders are patriots in private, but traitors in public. So go figure. Well, well, I think what's interesting is that they there are a couple of things that you've underscored. One is that the law applies to other people, but not to those who have political power, particularly not those who are allied with or close to the former president. But I think there's also the sense that um, the country is redefining, you know, addressing your question, what it means to be a patriot. And whether or not this is a country really about the rule of law and enforcing the laws because they protect us all, or it's a it's a arbitrary law depending on you know what side of the aisle you stand on, and so as which is why I think this is such a dangerous time. But what's so troubling is that obviously McCarthy, Kevin McCarthy, gets it. He knows what's going on. So does uh, Lindsey Graham and so does Mitch McConnell, who obviously McConnell privately loathes Trump, but he has to go along with it. And that's the amazing thing is the extent to which they have all, at every turn, protected Trump and other Republicans from scrutiny for their roles in the January 6th insurrection. And uh, you can even go back further with McCarthy when... Paul Ryan was the House Speaker. Then in a private conversation, McCarthy said to Paul Ryan, I swear to God, Dana Rohrabacher, this congressman out here from Orange County, and Donald Trump are on Putin's payroll, at which point Paul Ryan said, well, let's not talk about that in public. But that indicates to me 
that these guys know what's going on. They know what's going on in the real world, what a threat Trump is to American democracy, and even in the case of McCarthy, how Trump's ties to Putin are seditious. So what's going on? Why? Well, you know, it depends on how much of a, of, you know, a, a, a cynic you want to be, um, because this, it, it, just what you said, the ties to Putin have been persistent. They've gone on for years. And you really have to wonder when you think about where these guys have expressed their alliances, what they're afraid of. And so is it, a, they're afraid of losing political power? They're afraid of not getting reelected? Are they afraid of not um, addressing the base? What is it there? Were they afraid of Donald Trump? Are they afraid of Putin? And I think that's really where the rubber hits the road is, can we figure out what they are afraid of? Um, and is it the law that they're afraid of? And, and just exactly where does the law fit in the hierarchy of fears of how they could be either held to account or um, or you know rewarded, and so we don't know, and 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 it's hard. It's very hard to be able to make you know accusations of seditious conspiracy, which is kind of what you're talking about, um, or you know allying with um, a foreign leader or undermining democracy. It's very hard to want to make those accusations, and yet there's something broken in the system and it is not working to be able to help hold people accountable and more importantly to be able to get the stories and the facts out and these guys have been able to and girls have been able to um to sort of um deter um cancel and otherwise corrupt any attempts to get at what the narrative is, what the facts are, um, and and still there's been very little progress, uh, even though we do know more and more. It's it's very little in the scheme of things. And again, I'm speaking with Karen Greenberg, who's the director of the Center on National Security at Fordham Law School and an International Studies Fellow at the New America Foundation and a permanent member of the Council on Foreign Relations, a noted expert on national security, terrorism and civil liberties. She's the author of The Least Worst Place, Guantanamo's First 100 Days and Rogue Justice, The Making of the Security State. And her latest book is Subtle Tools, The Dismantling of American Democracy from the War on Terror to Donald Trump. And she has an article of Tom Dispatch, The Empire's New Clothes, the veneer of accountability is wearing thin in 21st century America. But it seems to me, though, Karen, that the law itself is at stake here in these January 6th inquiry and whether or not the Justice Department is going to act on it in time because you know the minute if the Republicans uh, take the House in November, the first thing they'll do is kill this select committee and we'll never know what happened. Already... As you point out in your article at Tom Dispatch, we've seen the fact that those who plotted to kidnap and kill Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer got away with it. We also saw the acquittal of Kyle Rittenhouse, who, who we saw shoot and kill two Black Lives Matter protesters with a, an assault rifle, which he was not legally able to have and was, and was actually escorted away by friendly policemen. Those were incredibly troubling incidents, but won't this be writ large across the landscape of law and order in this country that that vigilantes can get away with storming the Capitol? And yeah. the people that planned it and urged it and organized it, like Trump and company, uh, Eastman and company, they're going to get away with it. Well... 
we're worried that they're going to get away with it. And um, and you're absolutely right. I mean, one of the things that I'm arguing is that, that these other cases that you've mentioned and many others um, are 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 very important. But when you really look at the January 6th investigation, it's about the viability of the systems of justice the courts themselves. Can they hold anybody accountable given the political context we're in today? And one thing you have to know is that, you know, why do we have a, a rule of law? We have a rule of law not just to punish people, but to maintain um, social, a society that can function without chaos and, as you say, vigilantism. Um, and this is where we're in a very dangerous moment right now, because if the courts can't work, and January 6th uh, is the iconic uh, moment for this, the January 6th um, investigation and what happens with it. If it can't work now, then what does that mean for the courts in general? And, and I've argued for many years now that we've been on a slippery slope when it comes to the courts and accountability in general, um, you know, not just in, in individual cases, but in the aggregate when it comes to our government officials. But we've seen, for example, efforts to nail Trump. I mean, he's always been one step ahead of the sheriff, all his, his political and business life. And he was schooled by Roy Cohn to use the law proactively. And he does that. And of course, he has nothing in writing. He doesn't, have, doesn't use email, etc. But already we saw the new attorney general in Manhattan, Alvin Bragg, drop the investigation for quite mysterious reasons, which have yet to be understood. And, of course, Vance, his predecessor, managed to get, at great effort, managed to get the um, Deutsche Bank records, which were very revealing, which took him a long time. So he, he really worked hard to get the evidence, and then it just suddenly all, you know, disappears for no good reason. And then apparently that's undermining the state uh, attorney general's efforts to get Trump. So is there an explanation for why this is happening and would... Would the same happen with uh, Merrick Garland? Would he f decide if indeed Bragg decided he didn't have a strong enough case? I suppose in, in a way the worst thing that could happen is that they could, like the two impeachments of Trump, he, they could indict him and then he could skate. You know, this is just, it, this is very terrifying. So, you know, Alvin Bragg, who's the uh, DA, um, did drop his case. Two of the prosecutors resigned. One of them wrote a letter of resignation in which he basically said, look, you know, there was more than enough evidence to hold him guilty. So has the House committee said the same thing. We have seen the Justice Department do Really, we don't know what they're doing. And some people say, oh, they're just being quiet. But there is no evidence that any energy is being put into following up on what the House has recommended, um, even in terms of some of the contempt charges that have been forwarded to the attorney general. The question is, and I think some of the leading legal minds in the country have pointed to this, what is, what is going on with Merrick Garland? Why is he so passive? One of the things former attorney general for Obama, Eric Holder, said the other day uh, in a television interview was he defined himself as an institutionalist, somebody who thinks that the mechanisms of the Department of Justice are important to defend and you can't be pushed by political issues um, and defending the Department of Justice for what it does. He is saying, look, 
Merrick Garland needs to step up here. He needs to really think about this and consider charges in a, in a, in a very proactive way. So who knows what's going on with, with Merrick Garland, but it is disappointing people on all sides of the spectrum and is dangerous. And as you pointed out earlier on in the conversation, timing is of the essence. We're facing the midterms. Um, and it's also, you know, this is one of the things that Donald Trump has been very successful at is um, is slowing down the clock, appeal after appeal after appeal, and being able to make it so that things eventually dissipate, disappear, um, and he therefore gets away in a Teflon-like fashion. So, you know, if you ask me what's going on, I, I, it's really hard to imagine what's going on than maybe the simplest thing, which is politics have really take, overtaken the court system. And this has been happening for a while, not just in the last couple of years. So just in closing then, uh, Karen Greenberg, Eric Holder suggested quite clearly that if the evidence uh, was sufficient, then that they should indict Trump. And has anybody really seen this this opinion that the Justice Department has, has been holding up for so long that you can't indict a sitting president? And, that, and of course, Trump is no longer a sitting president. But what's the story with that? Have, has that ever been examined? I mean, has it been published? No. So here's the question about the Office of Legal Counsel in general, which is one of the things my book, um, Subtle Tools, is about, that the amount of secrecy that's allowed throughout uh, government, but particularly inside the Department of Justice, which is supposed to you know, provide evidence and provide facts, is really, and, and create the basis for policy, um, is really way too secretive. And so yeah, we do know what that memo said, which was that a sitting president cannot be indicted in large part because it would interfere with his um, ability to run the country and, and, and you know, effectively conduct what needs to be done as his in, in office. So we understand that. But there are other memos now that are in question that have to do with immunity for people around the president, for example, Steve Bannon. And this I and so one judge has said, well, let's see the memos, let's see what they say. Um, and so the question is, will we who knows what other memos are out there that they can cite? And you know, I think do Robert Mueller really did the country a disservice in relying on that memo um, and not really going forward. And it set us on a course that we're on to this day. So um, I think there are many issues layered in here, but you're pointing to a very important moment. I thank you very much for joining us here today, Karen Greenberg. Thank you so much for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Karen Greenberg, who's the director of the Center on National Security at Fordham Law School and an International Fellow Studies Fellow at New America Foundation and a permanent member of the Council on Foreign Relations, a noted expert on national security, terrorism, and civil liberties. She's the author of The Last of the Least Worst Place, Guantanamo's First 100 Days, and Rogue Justice, The Making of the Security State. And her latest book is Subtle Tools, The Dismantling of American Democracy from the War on Terror to Donald Trump. And she has an article, Tom Dispatch, The Empire's New Clothes, The Veneer of Accountability is Wearing Thin in 21st Century America. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back examining the emergence of a new axis of autocrats and the extent to which spoilers like Putin's friends Orban in Hungary and Erdogan in Turkey are undermining NATO, while our own pro-Putin spoiler in the U.S. Senate, Rand Paul, is the lone holdout in getting aid to Ukraine.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, David Phillips, the Director of the Peace Building and Human Rights Program at the Institute for the Study of Human Rights at Columbia University, and a former Senior Advisor and Foreign Affairs Expert to the United States Department of State during the administrations of Presidents Clinton, Bush, and Obama. And also joining us is Madeleine Jolson, the Executive Director of the Turkish Democracy Project. Together they are the co-authors of a new report from Colombia's Peacebuilding and Human Rights Program, An Uncertain Ally, Turkey's Response to Russia's War on Ukraine. Welcome to Background Briefing, David Phillips and Madeleine Jolson. Thank you. Great to be here. Thanks, Sam. Well, thanks for joining us. And let me begin with David. What do you make of Erdogan's threats now? against Finland and Sweden joining NATO. Of course, Putin is threatening Finland, and they've already cut off electricity to Finland. But, I mean, we are living in the age of spoilers. We already have Viktor Orban in Hungary, the spoiler to the concerted effort by the EU to cut off Russian imports of oil. We even have a spoiler in the U.S. Senate in the form of Senator Rand Paul, who's holding up aid to Ukraine at the very moment when Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell and a delegation are visiting Zelensky in Kyiv. So how much of a spoiler could Erdogan be in terms of Finland's and Sweden's entry into NATO? Acceptance of new NATO members requires unanimity among uh, existing members of the alliance. So technically it is within Erdogan's capacity to block Finland and Sweden from joining the alliance. Uh, they're still figuring out in Ankara how they're going to respond, but their reason for suggesting an obstruction is patently absurd. Uh, Erdogan has called Sweden a safe haven for terrorists because Kurdish refugees have resettled there in some numbers. It's important at the uh, council meetings that the rest of the NATO members make it crystal clear to Erdogan that he can't stand in the way, and if he tries to, there will be additional penalties against Turkey. So, Madeleine, according to the report that you and David have done, some of the signals that, that Erdogan has been sending, particularly when he sent his close business associate, Etham Sankak, to Moscow to deliver messages to Russian officials. His emissary appeared on the Russian news channel RBC and he called NATO a cancerous tumor. Mm -hmm. That's pretty extreme for a, a member state of NATO, isn't it? Uh, you know, I, I think I would describe my reaction to that, uh, to that bit of news as shock rather than surprise. I think that uh, if you... If you pay attention to the way that uh, to the way that Turkey has behaved, rather than the things that Turkey has said throughout uh, this war on Ukraine, both uh, both Sanjuk's comments in Russia and uh, this most recent move by Erdogan to try to block or at least signal his intention to block uh, Sweden and Finland's membership, these are not really. These are not isolated incidents. I think these are patterns of uh, a pretty consistent effort, not only to undermine NATO's uh, would-be unified response to this invasion, um, but also to signal, I think, something that um, anybody who's been paying attention to Erdogan has known for a long time, which is that he 
he is looking to Putin um, as a model for authoritarianism. Um, and he's been copying his homework, I think, for a long time in that regard. Well, your report refers to this compact as the axis of autocracy. But given that Erdogan recently visited both the UAE and Saudi Arabia to sort of repair the damage after the murder and, and dismemberment of Ashoji in the Saudi consulate in Turkey. So you could, surely, David, you could expand the Axis autocracy. It's not just Erdogan and Putin. It's also MBS and MBZ, is it not? There's a clear divide right now between democracies and autocracies. And then there are other countries that are sitting on the fence, waiting to see which way uh, the war in Ukraine goes. Uh, the fact that India is continuing to buy oil and gas from Russia allows Putin to replenish his coffers to the tune of about a billion dollars a day. So there are several countries that have their national self-interest in mind. There are other countries that are uh, picking sides based on an ideological division. We're clearly at an inflection point in world affairs. Our country is going to be counted uh, as a free and open society with the EU and NATO members, with the exception of Turkey. Or are they going to be on the side of autocracy? Uh, it's important that uh, President Biden make their choice uh, clear and transparent because the U.S. needs to know who it can rely on. Turkey, as suggested in the title of our report, is an uncertain ally. When it decided to buy S-400 surface-to-air missiles from Russia, it made a decision that it was hedging its bets and that it couldn't be counted on as a member of the alliance to oppose Russia in the event of conflict. And Madeleine, it seems irrational to many analysts what Putin is doing in, in Ukraine. However, as David just pointed out, he's still making money out of oil. In fact, the price of oil has skyrocketed. And so that's filling the coffers of both MBS and MBZ as well as Putin. So is this a kind of subtext that we're missing out on here, that they could recycle this money back into U.S. elections. Already it looks as if there's going to be a recession in Europe. Is Putin playing a longer game here than we are thinking in terms of watching his the poor performance of his military? Um, that is a good question, probably one that David is better equipped to answer than I am, uh, as I spend a lot more time studying Erdogan's motives than, than Putin's. Um, <laughs> Okay, well, let's, uh, David, step in. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Putin is hedging his bets. Uh, he knows that the free world opposes him. Uh, the U.S. has led a very robust sanctions regime. Uh, there have been six packages of sanctions that both NATO countries, with the exception of Turkey, the EU, and G7 countries have implemented to inflict financial pain on Russia and to compel Putin to change his course. But Putin doesn't seem inclined to react to sanctions. Uh, it affects the Russian people first and foremost. And in the past, Putin hasn't shown any interest in the welfare of his citizens. His primary interest is his own power and preserving the wealth and privilege of the Russian oligarchs who support him financially. So, Madeline, let's talk about the Russian oligarchs and how much money they're parking in Turkey. Turkey, of course, is 
is also angling to get more Russian tourists. They had, what, 7 million or something in uh, 2019. I'm not sure that a lot of tourists are going to be coming if the economy in Russia is bad. But the other thing that you brought out in your report, Madeline, is that a lot of these oligarchs, including Roman Abronovich, have parked their super yachts there. He's parked his both. He's also invested $1.2 billion in Turkey, along with parking the Eclipse and the Solaris, these two big super yachts. And then a whole bunch of other Russian oligarchs, uh, Nessus uh, Molchanov and uh, Deripaska and uh, Mahmudov and Alkaparov and uh, Arkady Rottenberg, uh, Putin's cellist friend. So this is uh, looks like a real haven. I mean, I know they're laundering their money and parking their money in, in the Gulf, but I didn't realize they were also parking it in Turkey. Oh, yeah. Um, I think this is uh, when I mentioned sort of a pattern of, of NATO disunity coming from the general direction of Turkey. This is exactly the kind of thing that I'm talking about. Uh, while almost all of the NATO alliance has sort of scrambled to make the cost of this war, uh, to make it felt by by Putin and his closest allies. Um, Turkey, uh, Erdogan specifically, of course, has done everything that he can to uh, to counter that trend. So as you say, Turkey has become a safe haven for uh, Russian money, Russian investments, um, Russian oligarchs. I think that the total cost of, of all of the yachts currently harbored in, in Turkey uh, the Russian yachts must be something over like $300 million. Um, and uh, at one point, um, Turkey started offering citizenship uh, in exchange for a certain amount of investment uh, to Russian oligarchs. And and I think that this, uh, this particular correspondence of oligarchs points to a much broader pattern uh, that we need to start paying attention to, which is that both Putin and Erdogan use these kinds of powerful figures to not only signal support for each other and um, and undermine the the efforts of of countries like the United States, Britain, uh, as they impose sanctions, but they also use them to uh, to enhance their own autocratic agendas at home. And David Phillips, what happened to Erdogan? Because he initially opposed or criticized the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Obviously, he has financial ties to Russia, but he also has financial ties to Ukraine. And the Turks, Turkish uh, produced Bayraktar TB2 armed drone, which was proven very successful in the Caucasus in the recent war between uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan over Nagorno-Karabakh. It's also proved to be very effective in Ukraine. I understand that they're actually manufacturing it now under license in Ukraine, I think the company is owned by Erdogan's son-in-law, is it not? Yes, it is. We should, we should be crystal clear, Anne, about a motive. Um, Turkey is driven by the goal of enhancing its regional power and gaining economic benefits. It doesn't view the war in Ukraine as an act of aggression, which is illegal and against international law. It views it as an opportunity to burnish its credentials, and so it asserts itself in international diplomacy. The idea that Erdogan is playing a mediator and that Turkey has hosted a series of sessions with Russian and Ukrainian officials is shocking to me. Turkey doesn't have the credentials to do that. Mediation needs to be done by an authoritative international body. Um, 
and Turkey doesn't have the uh, isn't responsible or proven as an impartial mediator. So its role there shouldn't be taken seriously. It's just part of a broader plan by Erdogan to assert Turkey's role and to establish Turkey as an international uh, player uh, with credibility. So, Madeleine, what can be done then to pull him over Erdogan? I mean, he's he's obviously not a member in good standing of NATO, and we started out talking about the extent to which he's trying to block the entry of Finland and Sweden into NATO. So is there anything that can be done? I know the, his economy is, is a disaster, and he's been an absolutely boneheaded steward of the economy. Uh, inflation is something like 70%. Uh, it's incredible. And the Turkish dinar has dropped in value, I think, what, over 20%? I'm, you probably have better figures than I do. but Absol- Yeah, absolutely tanking. <laughs> so what... What what can be done to yeah. either pull him over or, or short of uh, having him voted out, it's next year as the elections, right? Yeah, I think I would echo what, what David said at the beginning, which is that it's absolutely vital that the rest of the um the rest of the NATO members don't don't allow for this uh I guess it's vital that they present a unified front. I think it's important that we uh are clear on Turkey's reasons for this move, um, I think on the one hand, as we've discussed, it allows him to to signal his support for for Putin and for Russia. And so we should have no illusions about that. Um, we should have no, uh, that is NATO countries should have, should hold no quarter to this claim of um, harboring terrorists. When, when Erdogan says that, he means um, exiled journalists who've been exiled from his own authoritarian regime. And I think it's important to keep in mind that this move, while disastrous for NATO, is really a win-win for for Erdogan because it um, because not only does it allow him to signal that support for Putin, but it allows him to uh, whip up his sort of ultra-nationalist base in Turkey, who react very strongly to um, any mention of terrorism or the PKK, which is the uh, violent extremist arm of. Um, the uh, Kurdish separatist movement. Um, I would just, I would just advise NATO members to keep that motive uh, in their, uh, in the in the forefront of their minds, and and recognize that Turkey needs NATO more than NATO needs Turkey. Let me just clarify one thing here, Ian. I think it's a misnomer to call the PKK a violent separatist movement. It does not support an independent state of Kurdistan. It has rejected violence repeatedly. The only reason there's ongoing conflict between Turkey and the PKK is because Turkey refuses to accept peace overtures. Fair enough. It's a Excuse me. The international <laughs> community keeps the PKK on a list of foreign terrorist organizations. It's been years since the PKK has been involved in terror activities internationally. Uh, so we really need to see things as they are, not accept Erdogan's propaganda as truth. Fair enough. I'll I'll accept that correction, David. (laughs) So then just in closing, let me start with David and then Madeline. You refer to the compact, or whatever you want to call it, between Putin and Erdogan as the axis of authoritarians. It also could be the axis of kleptocrats, couldn't it? 
both Putin and Erdogan maintain their power uh, through a circle of oligarchs who benefit financially from their close association with the leaders. Uh, both countries are defined by anti-democratic government uh, and hostility to human rights, including minority rights. So they're able to keep their power because of the concentration of wealth and because of an ideology which promotes polarization and division in their society. The voters in Turkey are going to have an opportunity to have their voices heard in 2023 when there's a presidential election. I don't envision any time soon when Russian voters will have a chance to express their, dissatisfa their dissatisfaction. But we have to recognize that uh, dictators need popular support. And as long as the Turkish and Russian people don't oppose their leaders and demand regime change, we're likely to see continued autocracy in these countries. And Madeline, obviously, we've seen how Putin controls the media and democracy is a, is a facade behind which, of course, you have autocracy. And uh, the same is true in Erdogan's Turkey. And we just saw the election of Bongbong Marcos in the Philippines. And, and again, it's control of the media that seems to be the key here. In this upcoming presidential election, the chance to get rid of Erdogan, what's the chances then of... I mean, apart from the fact that the Turkish people must be feeling the pain uh, of inflation, but can they be educated uh, through alternative media to the extent of the kleptocracy that's similar to what Putin is doing? I mean, the reason that the military and the Russian military are doing so poorly is that, is that he runs a mafia state that's so corrupt that it's hollowed out even the military. It's certainly uh, going to be a challenge, um, 90% of Turkish media is controlled either by the Turkish government or by um, oligarchs who are closely aligned with the president. Uh, so as you suggest, it's, it is an uphill battle um, for free elections. It's not just a matter of, of free media. It's also a matter of um, accepting defeat. Uh, it's a matter of intimidation at the polls. Uh, you know, Erdogan's sort of total state capture has has made the has made it very, very difficult for the opposition. I don't think it's impossible. I agree with David that that they the Turkish people have a shot um, in June 2023 to have their voices heard, but they they need a lot of international support for um, their democratic institutions in the meantime. Well I thank you both for joining us here today, David Phillips and Madeline Gilson. Thank, Thank you so much. And again, I've been speaking with David Phillips, who's the director of the Peace Building and Human Rights Program at the Institute for the Study of Human Rights at Columbia University and a former senior advisor and foreign affairs expert to the United States Department of State during the administrations of Presidents Clinton, Bush and Obama. And also Madeleine Jolson, who's the executive director of the Turkish Democracy Project. And together they are the co-authors of a new report from Columbia University's Peace Building and Human Rights Program, an uncertain ally, Turkey's response to Russia's war on Ukraine. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back discussing how Central Asia could be the key to driving a wedge between Russia and China.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Ian Morris, the Jean and Rebecca Willard Professor of Classics and Professor of History at Stanford University, and the author of the forthcoming book, Geography is Destiny, Britain and the World, a 10,000-year history. He's also the author of the critically acclaimed Why the West Rules for Now, and has published many scholarly books and directed excavations in Greece and Italy. And he has an article at time.com, Central Asia could be the key to driving a wedge between Russia and China. Welcome to Background Briefing, Ian Morris. Well, thanks for, thanks for having me on. Well, thanks for joining us. And just prior to the war, to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Putin visited uh, with Xi Jinping at the Beijing Olympics, and he said... Uh, that there was this kind of a love fest where good friends who hold largely the same views on addressing the world's problems. As you point out, both Xi and Putin want to see the U.S. push back into the Western Hemisphere, leaving China dominant in Asia and Russia able to bully the European Union and Britain. And Russia and China's capabilities complement each other. China has the world's biggest economy, Russia its biggest nuclear arsenal. China has money but needs fossil fuels. Russia has fossil fuels but needs money. So how's that going? Most of the uh, oil and gas infrastructure in Russia is pointed towards the West, towards European markets, and we know, of course, that the Europeans are now finally woken up to their dependence on Russian oil and gas, except for the spoiler Hungary. They're trying to get off the oil immediately and the gas as soon as they can. So how is that last bit of... China has the money but needs fossil fuels. Russia has fossil fuels but needs money. Yeah, yeah. I mean, on the face of it, uh, Putin and Xi, it looks like a marriage made in heaven. <laughs> Each has got exactly what the other one needs. Um, put together, they you know, create this geopolitical block dominating the central part of Eurasia. Um, yeah, it's hard to think well, what could possibly be stopping them since they do, as you say, they want rather similar things, maybe for different reasons, so why they want to see um, the US push back out of the old world. But they do want much the same things. Um, but like so many things, when you start digging into the details a little bit, you do find all these reasons why this might not be as smooth and straightforward as it um, initially looks. And well, like you mentioned with the, the fossil fuels, yeah, everything has been set up in Russia to export out to the West. And of course, they, they do sell some to China. But overwhelming, it's been to, to sell to Europe. So um, switching that whole thing around, reorienting the infrastructure, that, that's a kind of a big project. And um, not to say it can't be done, because obviously China with the Belt and Road Initiative has already been very interested in infrastructure projects in Central Asia. But yeah, this is not something you, you turn on a dime and do this instantaneously. So in terms of, of what's been described as an axis of autocracy, which is Putin... Orban, Erdogan, MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, Saudi Arabia, MBZ, and the, the Emirates. How would you see China in that? Because China seems to be somewhat sitting on the fence. It's not all in with Russia uh, on Ukraine, and it's not all in, I think, in terms of joining in with MBS and MBZ and Russia in OPEC+. Plus. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's always, obviously, you know, any kind of 
coalition. There's always differences between what the different countries want. And I think in the in this grouping, the big difference, of course, is basically everyone needs China more than China needs everyone else. And the China is uh, the big paymaster. Um, and so the Chinese can afford to be a little bit picky, a little bit careful about who they go with. And um, you know, Chinese leaders certainly, I'm sure, don't want to get into a situation where the, the tail is wagging the dog. And I, I would think if, if I were Xi Jinping looking at Vladimir Putin, I would worry a little bit about if China gets behind him too strongly, that um, disasters that appear to be befalling Putin are then going to start feeding back into Beijing and affecting um, Xi Jinping's own position. And I think we do sometimes also leap a little bit too quickly to assume there's this sort of uh, ideological solidity among uh, politicians who have certain things in common. Like in the Vietnam War, it was way too easy for a lot of American analysts to assume, oh, well, yeah, there must be an a international communist plot here in China and uh, Russia, everybody all supporting Vietnam. I mean, what else could possibly be happening? Um, and in this case, I mean, I think you know, it's important to remember, like I say, in the run up to the Second World War until quite late in the 1930s, Mussolini was seriously considering being allied with France and Britain against Germany. And he had a lot of ideological stuff um, he shared with Hitler, but he was more worried for a long time about Hitler's rise to power than he was about any need to confront democracy. So I think that there's all these fissures, all these openings within these potential alliances. There's no guarantee of how anything can turn out. And of course, China would be probably concerned about getting too close to Putin, uh, particularly now that it's, it seems that Putin's mafia state is so corrupt that it's hollowed out even the military. Um, yeah, and it might well China might well be thinking, well, <laughs> we still depend upon European and American markets for our products. So, and again, I'm speaking with Ian Morris, the Gene and Rebecca Willard Professor of Classics and Professor of History at Stanford University, and the author of the forthcoming book Geography is Destiny: Britain and the World, a 10,000 year history. He's also the author of the critically acclaimed Why the West Rules for Now. And he has published many scholarly books and directed excavations in Greece and Italy. And he has an article at time.com. Central Asia could be the key to driving a wedge between Russia and China. I've been fairly recently had a couple of conversations with the historian Alfred McCoy at the University of uh, Wisconsin in Madison. And he's, he's discovered uh, the British Victorian geographer Sir Alfred Mackinder. And uh, you mentioned him, of course, as well in your time.com essay, Ian Morris, and he predicted that he who controls the Eurasian landmass controls the world. So Halford McKinder is not exactly well known in the Western world, but apparently he's widely read or avidly, as you point out, avidly read in Moscow and Beijing. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I uh, was very surprised. Actually, one of the first times I went to Beijing, everybody wanted to talk about Mackinda all the time, which is not something that you get you know, back in London, where he spent most of his uh, most of his own career. But uh, yeah, I mean, Mackinda was a really interesting guy, and he's the sort of he was the sort of academic, you know, flourished a little over a hundred years ago. The sort of academic you don't see all that much anymore, um, because he was you know, mainly by trade a geographer. But he had a really strong historical inclination. And nowadays, I mean, it's slightly surprising, but you know, most Western universities have kind of 
abandoned geography as a serious academic discipline. We don't really have departments of geography anymore. Uh, but McKinsey's big thing was putting the geography and the history together. And he, he reckoned kind of the big pattern uh, in history over the, the thousand years before his own time was that um, you'd seen uh, the rise of these uh, what he called outer rim powers, places like Britain, the United States, are fronted onto the great ocean, the Atlantic and the Pacific, and then developed technology, all, all the ships, to allow them to use these oceans to project power inland into the center of Eurasia, which he, uh, like you say, he thinks it's the, the geographical pivot of the world. Whoever controls that area will be able to dominate the rest of the world. But then he worried that in his own lifetime, in the late 19th century, new technologies like the railroad especially had begun to make it that more landlocked powers could form a coalition within the middle of central Eurasia and push back out again. So like, the British Empire was going to have to be much more worried about the Russian Empire. Uh, one of his nightmare scenarios was um, uh, kind of political union between Russia and either um, a power like Germany or one like China. He said either of these things will be terrible for the British Empire. So these sort of ideas, you know, they're very popular 100 years ago, but they kind of dropped out of the academic mainstream in the 20th century. Although, um, like you mentioned, they're, they're still very popular strategists in China and Russia. So in terms of... McKinder today, the Belt and Road Initiative is seen as a, an example of that, the idea that the, the power of the U.S. Navy is becoming irrelevant uh, if, this, if China can link up through the stands, through the Mediterranean, all the way into Europe. So I take it that what you're suggesting, though, in your Time.com article is that there are ways that this could be turned into a kind of 21st century version of the 19th century great game, this time pitting Russia against China rather than against Britain. So elaborate on that, if you will. Yeah, well, I mean, Chinese strategists for quite a long time now, since certainly since the 1950s, have said that the Americans are trying to contain China by forming this, this uh, string of alliances, what the Chinese could call the island chains, running uh, basically from Singapore all the way up to Japan. And this kind of constrains China's access to the Pacific Ocean. China, of course, so dependent on imported energy. But this, it's like the, the US has got its boot on China's throat the whole time. And so obvious thing to do you know, is to find another way out to the wider world. And um, seen from the West, this is very much what the Belt and Road Initiative looks like. You build this chain of highways and railways and communications through Central Asia, joined down to the Indian or Med Ocean or Mediterranean Sea. And so this is a very obvious, very sensible thing um, for uh, Chinese government to do. Um, there are certain things to gain from this for Russia as well. And the infrastructure to Central Asia could be a big boon for Russian trade for the, the oil and gas. But at the same time, there are differences of how Russia and China look at this at the Central Asian region. Both of them you know, super interested in Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan and all the other stands, but for somewhat different reasons. So the Russians, I think, particularly interested for the same reason that they were in the 19th century, pushing their frontier to the south, giving themselves more depth against um, maritime powers, so moving in from the Indian Ocean. Whereas for China, um, it's 
passing through these states and getting access to places further west that makes them most interesting. And that leads to some very different outcomes on the ground for people in Kazakhstan and uh, the other stands. And this is one place where I think a lot of diplomats think there is tremendous potential for the U.S. Um, or basically to, to make trouble for enough to put it too finely for, for both Russia and China. Um, to exploit these differences and widen them. And um, the one trip I've made to that part of the world was to Kazakhstan a few years ago. And one of the things people kept telling me was that they were just astonished by how inept and half-hearted American diplomacy was so far in the region. And I think we're going to see that changing in the next few years. But it does seem that authoritarians and, and kleptocrats have a certain advantage in this world today where the ideological struggles of the Cold War are over. Now that the struggles are between frail democracies and the encroachment of autocracy and kleptocracy. And early in the program, we're talking about both Orban in Hungary carrying Putin's water along with Erdogan, who's a member, and both of these states are members of NATO, yet they're undermining NATO. And a lot of Russian oligarchs are parking their money in their super yachts in Turkey to avoid sanctions. And so, but then if you go to the to the Pacific, we've just had a couple of examples of China bribing the Prime Minister of the Solomons uh, to get military bases, mm -hmm. which caught the Americans and the Australians uh, asleep at the switch, and it may actually end up causing the uh, defeat of the incumbent uh, Australian Prime Minister in these elections that are on now. I think at the end of May, I think, May 20-something, 21st, I think, is the election day. Uh, and then you've got what just happened in the Philippines, where Bong Wong Marcos is elected, and he is even closer to China than Duterte is. So, And, of course, we know how susceptible he would be to bribes. So how does the U.S. and the West compete with the ability of these kleptocrats to literally buy the elites in countries? Yeah, I think we, this, we're seeing some, some big changes in just the last few years. Um, it's been obvious for quite a while now to uh, governments in the, the Western Pacific that China is the great emerging economy. And uh, the, the, many of them have been feeling this tension between a traditional security alliance and often cultural ties they've got with the United States and then increasingly an economic dependency on China. And I think about, about 10 years ago, you could see this very clearly. I mean, I spent a little bit of time in Australia then. It was particularly obvious there that the government was trying desperately to find a way to avoid having to make a choice between the economic partner and the strategic partner. And in different countries, it sort of played out in slightly different ways. Some of them have managed to sit on the, the fence between the two. Others have felt kind of pushed into making a choice. Like the Australians have come out very strongly pro-American in just the last few years. Um, and I think the Australians themselves were rather surprised at the reaction of some of the Pacific Islands. Um, and there was a big um, meeting they had uh, two, three years ago with uh, Pacific Island governments where the Australian representatives were, seemed rather surprised by the, the, the strength of feeling about Australia's part in global warming, because you know, Australia, of course, presenting itself as the great friend of the smaller Pacific uh, islands. Um, but Australia selling vast quantities of coal to China, um, contributing a disproportionate amount to global warming and sea level rise. 
things. So there's a, a lot of problems here. And I think quite a lot of um, West Pacific governments would still try to uh, like to try to avoid having to make a choice. But um, the pro-China parties definitely seem to be getting the upper hand in a number of places. So it's not just bribing. No, no, I think there are genuine um, political interests and that people can see, or some, sometimes people can see there is maybe more to be gained by leaning toward China than leaning toward the US. We should hesitate to rush in and assume this is some deep-seated ideological choice. I think um, plenty of the West Pacific leaders are perfectly capable of weighing up the pros and cons and playing the great powers off against each other. Like the mouse that roared, right? <laughs> yes. Well, I thank you for joining us, Ian Morris. I appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. And again, I've been speaking with Ian Morris, who's the Jean and Rebecca Willard Professor of Classics and a Professor of History at Stanford University and the author of the forthcoming book, Geography is Destiny, Britain and the World, a 10,000-year history. He's also the author of the critically acclaimed Why the West Rules for Now, and he's published many scholarly books and directed excavations in Greece and Italy. And he has an article at time.com, Central Asia could be the key to driving a wedge between Russia and China. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. i